Heavenly Father, that is our prayer as we uh, read your word now. We pray that you would um, occupy our humble hearts as we humble ourselves before your voice. And by your Holy Spirit living within us, Lord, would you help us to receive these words and live by them for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have a seat and let me add my welcome to Andrews. My name is also Andrew, if we haven't met before. And I'm one of the pastors here, and here's the other one. And we are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. It's predictably going to take us ten weeks, and you've joined us at week seven. So we're going to read the whole thing, as we have every week, almost every week, um, because part of our aim is to um, get these words into our heads, even as we pray that God would write these words on our hearts. And so just so that we get familiar with them, and it increases the chance of us being able to remember them and live by them. So um, page 61... And our pattern has been that I read the first two verses and then you join in from verse 3 through to verse 17. So let's do that. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Please keep that open in front of you, and we'll be a bit of flicking back and forth in the Bibles, but I'm going to try and share with you where all this is coming from, um, and you'll also see a little um, outline inside the service sheets with lots of things to look up again afterwards, if that would help. And we've come to one of the very short commandments, just um, five words in English, you shall not commit adultery, and it stands actually with, as with all of the, the negative commandments, it's you shan't do something in order to protect something brilliant. It's negative to protect something positive. It's like saying, do not touch, which which could have the subtitle, enjoy continuing use of your hand, if it was a sign in front of a sort of spinning blade or something like that. Or do not drink, which could have the subtitle, enjoy a longer life, if it was on the side of a bottle of poison. It's a do not in order to enjoy something positive. 
Do not commit adultery in order to enjoy marriage as the gift that God has made it. And I want to start with the background and God's plan for marriage because the commandment doesn't come out of the blue. It's actually part of the, the story that begins right in the very first chapter of the Bible when God made the male and female. Um, and then the second chapter of the Bible where we find, find out about marriage. And then comes this law to protect what is already good. And I put it here on the sheet just to try and be thematic. Just as St. Nicholas, Nicholas didn't invent Christmas, Santa didn't come up with Christmas, so St. Valentine didn't invent romance. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, everyone knows that. No one thinks that St. Valentine did. But sometimes our society does speak as though we've invented sex. We've invented sexual freedom or liberation. And I want to argue that actually not only did God invent sex, but God invented the way to be free in sex. It's an original good that was God's idea. Um, St. Valentine didn't invent romance, but somebody invented Valentine's Day as an industry. That is certainly true. And I just couldn't resist doing a bit of statistical research on the internet. And this is actually quite mind-boggling. So expected retail spending on Valentine's Day in the United Kingdom, 2017, 687 million pounds. And this year it's projected to be 855 million pounds, which is quite conservative because just if you go across the Atlantic... Our American friends spent $20.7 billion on Valentine's Day. Someone invented that. I don't think that was God's idea. The, the whole, you can astonishingly expensive um, rose-shaped chocolates. Or, or I, I was actually going into London to go to the theatre with some friends, and the train was very full, and the restaurants were very full, and there was a lot of um, industry going on. But when it comes to the thing that, that Valentine's Day is celebrating, um, love... Um, intimacy, and um, people coming together to be part of a, a couple, uh, the, that unit of a relationship, uh, that was God's idea. But God had a very specific idea about it, and our culture is quite disdainful about the specific idea. I want just to, to begin at the beginning, though, because if God is our creator, then he's the one who set the world up, and he's the one who had an intention behind the world. So we're going to go right to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, and maybe you can turn there, and I've got three points to make. Genesis chapter 2, and some of you know these verses well, others who haven't been around churches so long won't know them well, but we, we need to know them. These verses are very foundational for understanding who we are as human beings, for understanding what it means to be male or female. That's something there's loads of confusion about the moment in the media. This is where God explains what it's about, and it's also the verses that explain what sex is for and what marriage is for. So just a few verses that tell us what it means to be gendered, uh, what it means to have sex, what it means to be married. So it's a pretty amazing amount of, sort of foundational things to squeeze into one paragraph. But here it is, page two of the Bible, right at the beginning of the story, verse 18. God's, the Lord God said about Adam, who he just made and planted in the Garden of Eden. He said, It's not God good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Um, we'd had a, a, a talk recently about, um, is, God, is the Bible good news for women? And the point was made, sometimes we think it's a demeaning word to be called just a helper. But actually in the Bible, it's a very wonderful word. And even God is described as a helper um, it, it just means that the complement to him, the one who alongside him, 
will enable God's purposes to be fulfilled. So God is on the lookout for somebody to correspond to Adam, to be alongside Adam. Together they might fulfill God's purposes for creation. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the fields. You know, we'll call this one a cow, and this one's called a sheep, um, and this one's called an eagle, and so on. But when it came for, to Adam, there wasn't found a helper suitable to him. There wasn't somebody that, that matched him or could pair with him or that could complement him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woo man, a woman. Um, in Hebrew, just as in English, the word comes from the word for man. And brought her to the man, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this, this um, paragraph, actually, we could do a whole, a whole sermon series on it. It tells us so much about who we are, how we relate to each other, uh, and so on. But I want to bring out three points, and you'll find them on the inside of the, the handout. Firstly, God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman. Um, it is part of the plan of marriage that it involves gender difference, and it's part of the plan of marriage that two who are different come together to make one. That's why um, God made Eve to complement having made Adam, so the two of them could join to become a marriage partner, partnership. And it's there in verse, 30, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Two become one. <clears throat> and the asymmetry of the genders, that it's a male and female, is very, very important in ways that we'll see more of when we get to the second point of the handout. But that was how it was set up in the beginning. And it's kind of how it's set up biologically. You don't need me to explain it, but the fact that sex involves the fitting together of a male body and a female body in a way that is designed. It wasn't just that we, you know, Adam could use part of his body in a, in a new way that God hadn't realized and suddenly along came um, three children. Um, God set it up that way in order that this is the way that rather than having just one man in the earth, not good for man to be alone, then now through marriage there could be a whole earth filled with God's image bearers. And he tells them to fill the earth and subdue it. So God's plan for many, many humans, God's plans for procreation, God's plans for family, all come down to his plan of designing a man and a woman to fit, to be one. God intended it between a man and a woman. Number two, God intended it to be powerful and permanent. And it's hard to overstate just how amazingly powerful a definition of marriage, verse 24, is. It's not, it doesn't say that a man will leave his father and mother and find someone to enjoy Netflix with um, of an evening so that you can discuss the plot line. Although, I guess, lots of you do that who are married. 
Um, it's not just a man and his father leave his mother and enjoy sex because it's good fun, although it is. Um, it's much more profound than that. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. Two people that are now joined together into one, uh, one family, one couple, one marriage partnership. And that is true, of course, at the physical level. That's how sex works. You know, you are joining bodies together. It's also true at the emotional uh, level. Uh, it causes people to be uh, joined and enmeshed together as they become vulnerable with each other physically and emotionally. And it's true at the spiritual level. They now become one. And Jesus comments on this passage when he's having a discussion with the Pharisees in Matthew 19. And he says, this is the reason that you can't just casually break a marriage. If you think that marriages can be sort of formed and broken very easily, then you've not understood how powerful it is. Don't you realize that a man and woman leave their father and mother and become one? And Jesus has that famous sentence that's always read at the uh, Church of England marriage services. Those whom God has joined together, let not man divide. Or the old um, language is, let not man put asunder. And um, I, love, I love saying this. It's one of my privileges as a Church of England clergyman. So I've married lots and lots of people, lots of my friends. And um, you get them to join their hands. And because of films, everyone always expects that you'll kiss the bride. And everyone starts applauding too early. And I always have to try and say, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Because there's one more thing that the, that the clergyman has to say. As you hold up, their, hold up their joined hands and you say, those whom joined together, those whom God has joined together, let not man separate, put asunder, because they become one. Uh, later, Paul is describing why Christians shouldn't visit prostitutes. And he says the same thing. It's not just sex. It's the joining of your body to someone in a way that is, is supposed to be lifelong and permanent. Someone's explained it's like sex is a very powerful kind of glue where you join yourself it's even better than that um, cyanoacrylate glue, you know, super glue that has the warning on the outside. Warning, joins skin and nails in seconds. Because it is true, if you put some of that on your finger and then you stroke your thigh, you suddenly realise that you're, I mean, that's how long it takes and your finger is stuck to your thigh. Or uh, the people who glue themselves to a tube platform in order to protest extinction, well, it's quite an effective thing to do. But sex is like cyanoacrylate glue, but stronger. It doesn't just stick you together physically. But it doesn't stick you together physically because you can end the act of sex and then walk away. But the joining that it does emotionally and spiritually um, is in seconds. It is that powerful. And so Paul says, don't mess with it. It's a trivial thing. Treat it the way that you would deal with a very powerful spiritual adhesive. God intended it to be powerful and permanent. God intended it as the foundation of family. Um, this is the context in Genesis 1 where God wants human beings to fill the earth and subdue it. And this is his plan in order to do that. Children come out of it. There's different ways God could have done it, couldn't it, I suppose? I mean, biologically, there's different ways that different species have children. So trees have seeds or some plants have runners. You could have that, you know, where a child sort of grows off the side of you and then when it's big enough, you snip it off and it's his own plant. Or, no, God designed the biology to work sexually, so that the way you have children is with two people, opposite sexes, coming together, and then out of that union comes the next generation. 
And because God is creator, none of this is an accident. It's not like we suddenly discover, I've got this body, let me experiment how I can use it. Much more than that, it's how is this designed to be? What is this for? Um, How are these features of my biology part of the intention? Well, God intended it to be for sex, which he intended to be between one one man and one woman till death us depart. That's God's plan, and it's a really good plan. Uh, It's a really fantastic plan, and it is actually a very central plan. Um, Andrew and I were having a conversation with another church leader about how much the Bible's talk about sex really matters, and we were saying it matters very, very much. And this other teacher said, oh no, but it's kind of a peripheral theme to the Bible story. And we looked at each other sort of in astonishment, because actually the marriage story is the central theme of the Bible. It's the central story of the Bible. It's not just in a little section marked ethics, it's in the section marked knowing God. It's in the section marked the future and where the universe is headed. It's in the section marked humanity and who we are. It touches everything. And I want to bring that out in point two. We've explored this a little bit already in our service so far. Marriage is a God-given picture of our relationship with God. So human marriage, this human relationship, and our vertical relationship with the God who made us are connected. One is supposed to be a mirror of the other. And we've seen this again and again in the, t- in the Ten Commandments, haven't we? That um, Jesus summarized the, the law as being, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength as the most important commandment, which some people have said that kind of sums up the first Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are all about how we treat God in worship and um, keep the Sabbath and so on, and use his name. And then Jesus said, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And people have often said, well, the first, um, Jesus' first summary commandment is Numbers 1 to 4, and the second summary commandment is Numbers 5 to 10. But actually, I want to suggest that um, all of the commandments um, belong together under Jesus' first heading. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, uh, how we treat each other and how we treat God are intrinsically connected at every stage. And we, we keep seeing that, and we're going to see it all the way through until the end of the Ten Commandments. This, it's very true of marriage, because God wants marriage to be his picture to the world of what it means to know him. And I think that is a rather wonderful thing as well. Uh, maybe you're visiting church today, and you're not quite sure where you stand with God. Maybe you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're just looking into Christian things. And you think, I wonder what it would mean to know Jesus Christ. What would it mean to follow him? And maybe our definition is in terms of what it means church attendance every week. Maybe that's what it means to be a Christian. Um, Or um, maybe it means rule keeping to live by this particular set of principles. And it it does mean both of those things. It means to be amongst his people on a a Sunday. It does mean to live by this book. But fundamentally, the, the image that God chooses to describe what it means to know him is of a marriage. Not God as a headmaster and us as his students. Uh, not God as a legislator. Not God as a legislator and us as his rule keepers. But God as a husband and the church as his spouse, his wife. And again and again the Bible describes this. And it becomes clear in a couple of places that actually it's not just that God was searching around for an analogy to know how to describe 
knowing him. He thinks, oh, I could choose marriage. But actually, God had in mind the ultimate relationship even when he invented marriage. So the relationship with God comes first in God's plan, and then he designs the universe to reflect it. We actually saw that with honour your father and your mother. We said that God designed the concept of being a father so that we could understand that he is a father. So he built fatherhood into the universe so that we could understand him as our father. Well, similarly, God has built marriage into the universe so we can understand him as our husband. God chose a relationship that would be secure um, and intimate and joyful. um, And he said, that is what it's like to know me. We've got lots of references there. We've said some of them together already. As the bridegroom rejoice over the bride, your God will rejoice over you. Um, Ephesians 5 is mainly the, maybe the most explicit, and maybe we can turn there. So that is on page, let me find it. Ephesians chapter 5 on page 979. And again, if you've been a Christian a long time, you probably know this passage. And if you're new to church, you may not know this passage, but it's a good one to learn. It's a really foundational one for marriage. And I'm going to read from verse 22 at the bottom of page 978. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is itself its saviour. As the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's a verse that lots in our culture are shocked at. How dare you say that men and women are not equal, says somebody. How dare you say that a wife should submit to her husband. What a demeaning thing. And actually, it's impossible to understand this verse in a culture that doesn't understand a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, if you know what it's like to know Jesus as your Lord, then you'll know what it's like to know a husband as your, um, as your husband. It's God's plan that just as a Christian has the great privilege of following the leadership of somebody that loves him or her, So the Christian wife has the great privilege of a husband who is going to lead her um, for her good. Similarly, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're never really going to understand that if you're not a Christian, um, unless you know a saviour whose love for his bride involved him going to his death on a cross. You won't understand what is required of a Christian husband towards his wife. And only when you put them together... Do submission and leadership really make sense? I remember, um, uh, I've mentioned many, many times from the front here at Grace at Greenwich, mentioned the name Mark Ashton. He was the vicar of the church that both Andrew and I went to at university and where I was converted. He's a great teacher. But I remember his one line on um, why submit to your husband when he was sort of taken for the soundbite so someone could you know, express their dismay at the Bible. What do you say about that verse? And he always used to shake his head and said, unless a culture can come to terms with the view of leadership that involves somebody going to the cross for the sake of his bride, then they will never understand what the Bible is asking for a Christian wife to do. In other words, submission doesn't make sense without love. Love doesn't make sense without the cross. And if you know the Christian gospel, then rather than being shocked at this, you'll think it's a beautiful thing. A wife entrusts herself to the leadership of a man who would give up his life for her good. That's Christian marriage. And it's also the Christian message. 
Um, often when I'm doing weddings, I like to interview the, the husband and wife, or the, at that stage, the fiancé uh, and fiancé, about their marriage. And I say to them, what does this verse mean to you? What does it mean to you to know Jesus as your Lord? And Christians will say things like, oh, well, I've discovered that living for myself is overrated. Um, autonomy and independence, it, that's overrated. It's much better to be able to entrust my life to somebody that, that loves me. And the husband, or the husband-to-be, usually says, I'm very daunted because Jesus has set me the example of the kind of love that is required of me. And he went to his death. That's Christian marriage. That's also the Christian gospel. A Jesus who died for us so that we might follow him as a Lord who we can trust. And the same can be said of all these passages. I've given a whole load of them. Ephesians 5, 2 Corinthians 11. Revelation 19, it's how the Bible ends. The, uh, the Bible ends with a wedding. Andrew, we were discussing the sermon on Friday, he pointed out to me that actually in all sorts of ways, two become one in the Bible. So God's plan was, remember in marriage, the two will become one flesh. And there's all sorts of ways, if you read the first chapter of the Bible, you read the last chapter of the Bible, two have become one. So we begin with um, day and night in the beginning of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, they've become one because there's no night. The Lord Jesus is the sun, and he's shining all the time. The sun never sets. Um, in the beginning of the Bible, it's heaven and on earth. Uh, at the end of the Bible, heaven has come down to join earth. The two have become one. Um, at the beginning of the Bible, it's male and female. And at the end of the Bible, it's a marriage. And God and his church have been united. Um, so marriage, it, it's not... What the Bible says about sex, it's not a sort of peripheral thing in a little... Um, what do you do in your bedroom kind of compartment. It's about everything. It's about who we are. It's about what it means to know God. It's about where we're headed forever. Now, I hope you can see, and we've, for each of the sermons in the Ten Commandments series, we've spent quite a lot of time before we actually get to the don't, trying to understand what is good that God is trying to protect. And so now we get the don't. And I hope you'll understand why God needs to say don't. Remember I gave the analogy, don't touch is another way of saying, keep your hand intact for longer. Keep away from the spinning blades. Don't drink is another way of saying, live for tomorrow. Don't drink the poison. And so when God says, don't commit adultery, that's another way of saying, protect the beautiful thing that I've made called marriage, which points to the most central thing in the universe, what it means to be loved by me. God forbids... Whatever undermines or threatens his beautiful pattern for sex only within marriage. That's the way to understand it. Not God going around being a, a spoil sport, trying to stamp out people's fun. It's God being kind, trying to protect people from harm. And of course, this is um, the thing that our culture doesn't get because our, our definition of, of sex in our culture is pretty much Sleep with anyone you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. I think that's the, the definition you get on the, the streets of, of sexual ethics. So paedophilia is wrong because you're hurting a victim and a child who can be exploited. Rape is wrong because it's physical violence against somebody who doesn't want to sleep with you. But apart from that, as long as you both want to, then it's fine. That's how our culture defines it. But... Actually, God knows our hearts much better than that. He has basically the same definition, as long as it doesn't do any, any, any harm. 
That's also God's definition. Except that God perceives that any kind of sex outside of marriage does do harm. It does do harm to God's plan in marriage. God forbids whatever undermines or threatens his beautiful plan for sex. And God um, perceives that actually all sorts of practices, in fact any sexual practice outside of or other than a marriage between uh, one man and one woman for life, hurts people. It causes harm. It threatens the pattern that God has made. And maybe we disagree at that point. We go, no, no, it it doesn't, God. I I can enjoy sex in this other way, and it it hasn't hurt me. And at that point, it just becomes a sort of slagging match, doesn't it, between us and our creator. Um, Who knows better? Um, Who knows the human heart best? Who is most perceptive? Because God says again and again, it does harm you. It will hurt you. And so don't. Uh, here are some of the examples, that, or here are some of the specific instances. First of all, adultery. Maybe you wondered, as I did, why the, the seventh commandment isn't don't have sex outside marriage in that sort of general way. That, that's certainly how the rest of the Bible comes to apply it, and we'll see all of these different um, sexual uh, practices are forbidden. But why use such a specific description in the Ten Commandments? Why, why speak of adultery rather than something more general like sexual immorality? Well, I think it's because at the centre of God's plan for sex is marriage. And so the most harmful sexual mispractice is the one that most harms marriage. So, I mean, all these things are wrong and all these things hurt people. But the thing that is sort of the most obviously closest to the centre of what God is trying to protect is adultery. This is supposed to be a permanent, secure joining of two people to show the world what it's like to know God. And so unfaithfulness is a particular evil uh, to tear apart what is being joined together. Um, to question the faithfulness, to undermine the security to damage the intimacy of that bond, uh, it is the most damaging thing of all. I think that's why it comes in the heading, don't commit adultery. But actually we can cause um, damage in all sorts of other ways that kind of flow out of that. So one is divorce. And Deuteronomy in the law, it describes laws for divorce and how to do it. And the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the religious teachers, have misunderstood that because divorce is in the Bible, Divorce must be God's plan. It must be okay. And Jesus explained an important principle that not everything that the law regulates is something that the law delights in. Uh, Not everything that the Bible describes because it's being real is the Bible describing it as ideal. So, for example, there's there's laws in the Bible about what to do if, if you murder somebody or what should be done to murderers. That doesn't mean that murder is the ideal It just means that God is realistic enough to know that people are going to get murdered sometimes. Um, So God gives us laws to regulate a fallen, broken world. It doesn't mean that he delights in a broken... It's kind of obvious, isn't it? He doesn't delight in those things. Well, the same as murder laws doesn't mean that God wants murder. So divorce laws don't mean that God wants divorce. But God's realistic. This is a broken world. And marriages are sometimes broken. And the divorce law is intended to protect um, a woman in the case of being divorced by a man in that first culture. But Jesus said it wasn't his plan 
It wasn't God's plan. God's plan, you go back to the beginning, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. That is God's plan. Um, marriage lifelong till death us depart. Um, also, harming marriage is fornication. That's just the word for sex outside of marriage if you're not married. So adultery is sex outside of marriage if you are married. Fornication is sex outside of marriage if you are married. And we had a reading from 1 Thessalonians. And Andrew invited you, as we were hearing it read, to identify as many of the reasons as you could why Paul urges us not to um, engage in sex outside of marriage. And I thought we'd um, see how many we can find now together. So it's on page 987. I don't know of another passage in the Bible with more reasons in it than this one. And maybe God knows just how tempted we are to disobey him and just how much persuasion we need. So let's go through from verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 4, and see if we can count the reasons. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There's reason number one that you can please God. God loves it when people live his way and it makes him really happy. So make God happy with your sex life. That's the first reason. Love God is the underlying first reason. Number two, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a Bible word meaning your setting apartness. So God wants you to be different or distinct in this way just as he himself is different and distinct. That's maybe, that's reason two. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's reason number three, or maybe reason three and four, that this is a, a holy, a godlike, distinctive way to live your body. This is an honorable or good way to use your body. Not, verse 5, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. In other words, people who don't know God, sex is just a primal impulse and you just follow it wherever it leads you. But people who do know God treat sex as a gift from a good creator and that means they have a different attitude towards it. Number five. Number six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now that's, that's the one that absolutely strikes at the heart of our culture's assumption. It doesn't do anyone any harm and Paul absolutely disagrees. Now if, you, if you're engaged in sexual morality, you are wronging your brother. Um, you are um, uh, doing wrong against um, a future husband um, or against the person you're sleeping with or against their family or against other people who are affected in a knock-on way. It hurts other people. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In other words, there is a judgment day when God will get revenge on those who have harmed others. Verse number seven, uh, verse seven God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And then finally, number eight, if you ignore this, you're not ignoring man, but you're ignoring God himself. He gives us his Holy Spirit. I, I've lost count, but there's a lot of reasons why he wants to urge us that we shouldn't indulge in sex outside marriage. Not because he's being mean, 
but because he's trying to protect something that is good and precious. Homosexuality is out, and because marriage was part of God's design, that it would require two who are different to become one. And actually, we see the, the importance of difference everywhere that the Bible talks about marriage and everywhere that it explains the analogy of marriage. Because the whole point of marriage is it reflects a relationship between us and God, and us and God are not the same. We're two different brought together. Um, and so it, it's by God's design that we are differently gendered and that marriage is the coming together of two differently gendered people, male and female, to be one. Um, homosexuality is out, and there's, I've given you some text there. There's, there's others as well. Prostitution is explicitly forbidden. Forbid, forbidden. It carries the death penalty on, in Israel. Polygamy, that's a difficult one because lots of people in the, in the Bible have more wives than they ought to have. And so sometimes people say, well, the Bible's not that serious about polygamy because look, you know, David had one, two, three, four, five, and Solomon had 700. That's a bit crazy, admittedly. Um, it's quite common in the Bible for people to have more than one wife, as it was in those kind of ancient cultures. It's common for people to have many wives. It's not common for people to have many wives without it causing enormous chaos and pain. And polygamy is always in context where there's enormous tension that results from it and all sorts of consequences that follow from it. And it isn't God's plan in the beginning. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And it becomes explicit in the New Testament. Only one wife um, for each man. Um, incest is mentioned in Leviticus. Bestiality is mentioned. Um, pornography isn't mentioned in the Bible, um, especially internet pornography, it just didn't exist. But the principle of not indulging your thoughts in something that leads to indulging your body is um, described in the Bible. And I was kind of wondering, do I leave pornography for the 10th commandment, which is about your thought life? But I thought I'd put it in here, it could go in either actually. But be careful not to begin to indulge in your thought life what is prohibited in your action life. And Jesus makes that point in the Sermon on the Mount. Lots and lots of specifics, but the general headline, God has made sex for marriage and it's really good. Anything else undermines or threatens it. And so for our good, God says, don't. Well, at this point, maybe there's a sort of heaviness in the room because I would guess that this is something that touches every, every conscience in the room. Um, everyone will see themselves somewhere in the list. Uh, there'll be people here who've been in homosexual relationships or indulge in homosexual acts. Uh, there'll be people here who um, are in marriages or have been in marriages that are broken, um, maybe have been divorced. Uh, there'll be people here who are touched by all sorts of things on this list. And so I want to end by saying that there is a gospel as well as God's law. And the gospel offers to all of us forgiveness but it offers forgiveness where there is repentance so point three on the handout Jesus calls us to turn from sexual sin if we do we can be cleansed sanctified justified I want to turn to one of the most beautiful passages I think on this subject which again you may know well or it might be new to you and I think it's one to learn to have at your fingertips even if it's to say to yourself as well as to trying to explain to people who aren't Christians, about what the Bible says about this. It's a great passage to speak to yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
And this is on page um, 955, top of the page, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, so don't underestimate the importance of these things. If you live in this way, you cannot be in God's kingdom. And when Jesus comes back, you cannot be welcomed into his new creation. And he describes several of the things on our list. Homosexuality, adultery, sexual morality, as, long as, as well as some others. But it doesn't mean one strike on you're out. In fact, quite the, quite the reverse. He says to the church in Corinth, verse 11, and you were some of these things on this list. So the, the church in Corinth was a collection of people who had been swindlers or drunkards, some of them, or um, in homosexual relationships, some of them, or um, adulterers, some of them. Yeah, some of you were that, past tense. You were that. But you were washed you were sanctified, it means you were set apart as God's special people. You were justified, it means you were acquitted in God's courtroom, declared to be innocent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it might be this is a church that has some ex-adulterers in it. I, don't, I imagine it probably does. It's a church that has some ex-sexually immoral people in it. Um, I'm sure that it, it does. And yet now, those people, if we have repented, if we've turned from those things to the Lord Jesus, we're now a church that has washed people in it, clean people, that has sanctified people, set apart to be holy for God people, that have been justified. It means declared to be righteous before God because of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, people. So we're not to carry our pasts as a millstone around our neck, always tugging at our conscience, reminding us of past failures. Uh, rather, some of you carry around our neck, and all of us should metaphorically, if not physically, a cross that says, Jesus washed me, Jesus sanctified me, Jesus justified me. I'm an ex-sinner. I'm now a Christian. That is a wonderful truth that is applied to each one of us if we are repenting. Paul gives a warning. He says, don't be fooled. If you carry on down that path, you can't be in God's kingdom. But if you turn from that path, through the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his great love for us, washed, sanctified, justified. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. Um, I've put some questions in, coffee questions, to try and um, drive this home. Um, I've asked, how can we uphold marriage? That's the commandment of Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be held in high honor among all. How can we honor marriage? It, I think that's a question for us, whether or not you are actually married. We can think, how can we protect, how can we pray for the marriages in Grace Church Greenwich, all of us? That's a great thing to do. How can we flee from sexual immorality? And it might be, as every week, as... God's words um, uncovers things in our lives. It might be that specific action is needed. Uh, maybe there's something that you need to stop doing. 
something that you need to um, put in protection in your place that you won't go back to a habit of the past. Maybe there needs to be change, even this week. How can you flee from sexual immorality? But then if you are doing that, if you are upholding marriage, if you are turning from evil, then how can you apply to yourself the comfort of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11? We were washed, sanctified, justified. Um, just a postscript on St. Valentine, quite a fun fact. Um, actually, he wasn't known for being a romantic or for coating little chocolates in the shape of hearts or anything like that or for, for sponsoring the card industry. He's actually a, um, a Christian minister um, who died as a martyr. He was put to death for his faith in the Lord Jesus on the 14th of February. And uh, a, a festival has been celebrating his day uh, in, his, in his memory since 496 AD. Um, St. Valentine was um, a Christian and he was somebody who stood up for and defended the message of God's great love for us in Christ Jesus. And he's a very appropriate saint for a celebration of love on Valentine's Day. Less appropriate to celebrate some of the things that go with Valentine's Day. But right at the heart of it, the message of love and intimacy that God designed marriage to reflect. Um, your maker is your husband and he delights in you. And so God, to, to try and explain that to the whole world, invented male and female so that the two might become one, joined powerfully and permanently in a reflection of the marriage, the relationship that we're all headed for if we're Christians on the last day, the great wedding supper of the Lamb. So we can have a pause and then prayers and then question time.